A while ago, as I responded to a writer who had written on the nature of evil, I was taken aback by a claim he made that metaphysical factors could not be quantified. I pondered on what is more metaphysical than numbers and money. I had, of course, explained that answering if evil existed was not as important as answering the question as to if evil was quantifiable or not. If evil existed and could not be quantified, its existence was moot. To be honest, I forgot that people still thought as he did. My failure to appreciate the prevalence of this position of his is maybe responsible for some of the misunderstandings generated by the discussions I've had on evil. Of course, if one assumes metaphysical statements are invalid as to atheists, then arguments based on the quantification of evil would appear nonsensical. In any case, discussions with, e with atheists on the nature of evil quickly enter into the twilight zone of absurdity. Even a mediocre philosopher must know that any and all arguments, indeed every statement about metaphysics, is metaphysical by definition. Atheists cannot claim metaphysical statements are nonsense, nor even take a position regarding metaphysics. Without taking up a positive position regarding metaphysics, atheists cannot claim all truth is empirical or non-metaphysical without creating a self-refuting metaphysical statement. The claim all truth is empirical is a metaphysical, i.e. not empirical, claim. The real truth is that empirical truths and secular ideas are synthetic and by nature contingent. In other words, by their very terms of existence, statements that are not metaphysical or are not analytical are relative, not absolute. Any statement about absolute truth or any absolute statement is a metaphysical statement. All absolute truths or absolute statements are metaphysical statements about metaphysical truth. All total and absolute truths then are metaphysical. Secularists cannot even argue the invalidity of metaphysics without engaging in metaphysical arguments. Non-metaphysical philosophy is therefore nothing more than opinion. Even non-metaphysical statements are self-refuting or meaningless. To say truth is relative is to self-refute the claim, because truth is not relative. If the statement is relative, it is not true, unless it is meaningless, as in the statement it may be meaning. If this does not give you pause, then try to understand. Metaphysical statements are true, or there is no truth worthy of the definition. This conclusion, interestingly enough, was not developed by theists. The main proponents of this position were the most decisive and intelligent of all atheists. The logical positivists, also known as the Vienna School, 
were the people who developed these findings. In attempting to prove that all metaphysical discussion was meaningless and that all metaphysical claims were unprovable by the methods of empirical science, the philosophers of the Vienna School demonstrated they were, in fact, doing metaphysics. And if they were not doing metaphysics, their findings were rendered meaningless. This was when atheists gave up attempting to defend atheism and retreated into philosophical apathy. And this is where they remain to this day. And this is why the new definition of atheism as the rejection of all philosophical statements about God was created. They cannot defend atheism or make arguments against metaphysics without arguing metaphysically. So it is logically impossible to make statements without these being metaphysical or tautological or meaningless. Empiricism could not and cannot buttress claims made about the empirical method using empiricism alone. However, the inherent failure and unverifiability of atheism in the secular position is a far cry from proving that, that evil can be defined, quantified, and measured, or validated in a quantifiable way. The first step toward defining evil and towards understanding how it impacts society is to comprehend its counterpart. This definition or description of good that we're going to make will sound rather strange to most ears. Understanding evil requires you understand a little something about reality and ownership. We own what we author. We do not own what we do not create, and we have no claim on anything created by others. This means anything we did not ourselves produce, we do not and cannot own. Hopefully you, you will see this creates serious issues and problems. If you do not think a paradox has been created by this statement, you did not understand what was said about the nature of ownership. Even so, it ought to be obvious to everyone. No one created the natural world, at least no one who is living on it. No person created the air, land, or water, and as a consequence, we have no right to it. These natural goods are gifts given to us for personal use. We do not own personal goods or things we need for personal use, but the issue is moot and need not be discussed, other than to say God permits the use of what he created for personal use, and no one can dispute this and continue to live. Let's move a bit further ahead. There is not much on this planet that is useful to us without it being modified or processed in some ways. Plants in their natural state do not produce large crops, and animals in their wild state are difficult to kill and do not always produce more caloric value than what is burned during the harvesting. For the sake of civilization, mankind has had to claim land, plants, and animals, and tools, and machinery to make development possible. Just to move away from subsistence, mankind had to exercise a sense of ownership over the earth. So let's move on from here then. 
The problem man has encountered in developing civilization is the wide range of abilities between persons. Some people cannot sustain themselves, and others are so clever they can literally develop ways of thinking and doing things that change the world. The weak need to be helped by the strong, but the extraordinary person also deserves compensation and recognition for what he or she achieves or has, has achieved. But how to do this? Do we permit the individual to define his own level of compensation, as happens in capitalism? Or do we put recognition in the hands of the state, as communists do? Think of the first man who chipped out an arrowhead. He did it to make himself a better hunter. Perhaps his tribe saw wisdom in permitting this hunter to remain in camp and focus on making arrow and spearheads for the tribe's use. The artisan no longer made arrowheads for personal use, yet what he was doing was not that far removed from personal use production. The village wisely created what economists call an example of specialization. The best hunters hunt, the best foragers forage, and the best arrowhead maker makes arrowheads. It is when an arrowhead maker claims a quarry the rock quarry, that is, as his own, and uses monopoly power to gouge the tribe. When the activity of one member becomes so overvalued that he or she becomes wealthy at the expense of everyone else, that is when we need to consider an injustice is being done. It is easy to see Og never made the flint from which he is gaining his wealth. What gives him the right to claim the entire supply of flint as his own? Indeed, to get technical, what gives him the right to even sell arrowheads? He is not the sole owner. Like a house with a lien attached, the seller cannot sell the property unless the lien holder is notified and agrees to the selling. The arrowhead is disputed property. No one disputes the design and work is not the property of the artisan, but of is not selling the design or the work. He is selling a fully formed arrowhead made of flint that belongs to God. Let's restate the problem in a way that will make the issue clearer. Imagine one member of the tribe claiming the quarry of rock as his own. As he is a very skilled fighter and has the most brothers and male relatives, the tribe is unable to challenge his claim. The owner of the quarry is able to sell flint for whatever price he likes, as it is the only supply of flint the tribe has. Interestingly, this behavior is closely related to the situation we are still in. In the liberal democratic system, might makes right, and the end justifies the means. We rarely resort to physical force now, to enforce our claims. But we are not the sole owner and we have no need to. The state is the proxy owner of what we have title to and keeps that option open. We permit the state to administrate our common claim to that which we have title to because we understand that anyone who challenges the state will be defeated by the state's superior power. To be good is to pay one's way. To be good and do good 
we have to have ownership of what is good, i.e. ownership of things with value, things that we create. There is no way around this. If we have nothing, we cannot do anything, at least nothing on our own volition. A slave cannot do good because he cannot do anything out of his own volition and has nothing of his own to do good with. Minor courtesies can be performed, but we will ignore this for the sake of conciseness. If we do not own the car we drive, using it to shuttle people around is not a good, at least not an unmitigated good. As for the case of a slave, we can perform what are better called courtesies or acts of politeness. Good acts need to consume the resource of a charitable person, not what belongs to a third person or only a small portion of time. So doing good consumes that value. Saying hello or opening a door is not doing good. It's merely being courteous. If we need goods to do good, then evil are acts that disable this capacity for others. Stealing not only takes what belongs to others, it removes from the other person the capacity to act benevolently and give what was taken, whether to you or to someone else. We call this depriving people of what belongs to them stealing, fraud, or preloading. Evil acts are acts that deprive people of the opportunity to do good. Freeloaders deprive authors of their equity, that is, of their things of value. Okay, so let's move on a step further. Og created an arrowhead, but it was created by adding value to what already existed. If you did not see the dilemma if, that this creates before, you ought to see the problem now. The problem is a paradox that has lasted at least for 5,000 years. The inability to resolve it has given us virtually every social problem you can name. Og is entitled to the value he created, but has no claim on the value inherent in the stone from which the arrowhead was formed. God confirmed this when he told us the worker is worthy of his wages. In capitalism, it is thought the capitalist is entitled to set the price. In communism, it is the state that is given this right. Did anyone ask God if this is okay with him? Because it is not. The stone, the waterfall, the forest, and all other things man claims is not our wages. These are assets created by God and claimed by God. Why did he tell the rich young man to sell what he had and give the proceeds to the poor? Why did he mock the rich man who filled his barns and settled down to what he thought would be a long and prosperous retirement? Why the statement about the love of money being the root of all kinds of evil? We cannot clear cut a forest and put whatever price we wish on the lumber and keep the proceeds for our own use. At least, had we given 10% of our earnings to the church, we might be forgiven but it still does not make the action itself right. The only just price is a price set by the labor theory of value. No matter if you think it is a practical device for establishing the selling price of goods and services or not, the labor theory of value remains the only just way at arriving at a true price. 
your inability to figure out how to obey God is not God's fault or problem. If the person who added value to a natural resource has the right to define the value of what he added, but no right to define the full value of the product or service traded because she, he or she used what belongs to God, then we need a trustee to represent the fiduciary interests of God with power and who is given power of attorney. This is the church. However, to prevent confusion when talking about the church in this context, we call this proxy agent and exchange. We know from scripture that the church is composed of witnesses to God's glory or those whom the Bible calls saints. We propose that the church was formed to represent the interest of God in the world. It is therefore the church that legally owns all that was created by God. When we wish to start a business, assets of the needed kind are allocated to us by the church in the name of God and under the authority of God. We do not own these assets. All capital is owned by the subsidy created by the church to serve as owner of record. This is the new business. If we are setting up a taxi business, the new business is given a car or cars by the exchange. The value of these assets are debited the business account. If $50,000 is credited to the business, the business account shows a debit of $50,000 and the exchange account shows 50,000 credits. The entrepreneur does not invest capital in the business directly. If he has assets over and above what he needs for personal use, the value of these are credited to the exchange. The exchange allocates capitalists needed towards the capitalization of new businesses and towards the support of existing businesses to expand them. People in the taxi business drive the taxi and are paid for the work they do by the exchange. If they take from the exchange or a member of the church and do not record this as a debit, this is evil. The exchange is able to give the theft or fraud a numerical value and debit the criminal's account. The amount taken is a debit to the freeloader and a credit to the victim's account to compensate for the harm done. This is not to say the exchange will always be paid back any monies credited to the account of a victim. This is about recording debits and credits. The harm done by a criminal can be quantified and recorded and ought to be. Society can and ought to track harm done on the criminal's account and on the account of his or her victims. We note that this accounting activity reflects the book of life that God maintains. We may hide some of our costs from others, but these costs are not hidden from God. He will have all expenses listed and all credits listed. These entries will balance out in your favor or not. It behooves us to keep as accurate account as possible on earth to lessen the surprise that might await us in heaven. We are forgiven the sins we do to God 
But the question remains. If we are forgiven the costs we create within the church for the saints, if we are, why does God ask us to forgive those who trespass against us so we can be forgiven our own trespasses? It seems a cautious person would prefer to keep their accounts out of arrears. If someone is in arrears to us, perhaps by forgiving these costs, some of the arrears we have accumulated will also be paid for and forgiven.